Anyway, have fun. Um, but this is the first in our series of focusing on the Bible. We've got a four-part series, and we have spoken a few times just about how we feel it's so important that as a church, we are founded on the Word of God, and also that we have deep foundations in the Spirit of God. And so we're spending a bit of time over the next few weeks just focusing on God's Word, on the Bible, what it is, why it's so important, what is the huge, amazing, big story that the Bible and therefore God invites us into. So Ben is going to pick that up uh, right now. Ben has been feeling a little bit poorly, so Ben, we ask that God will bless you and that would heal you as you speak. And uh, really exciting to have Ben share on this this morning. Nothing that's a ibuprofen and a good strong coffee hasn't sorted out, right? Um, good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to start with a clip, uh, which is from the Bible course. Some people uh, came through and did the Bible course with us. Uh, it's a course I'm sure that we'll run again. Um, but focusing on the Bible, Rachel, if you're ready, cue it up. Transform our lives today. Welcome to the Bible course. The Bible is the most influential book ever. It has impacted the world all around us more than we've ever imagined. For example, the language we speak on a daily basis. So many common words and phrases originate from the English Bible. Words like sex, beautiful and busybody and phrases like, by the skin of your teeth, eat, drink and be merry. Many of us get our names from Bible characters. You might know a Joshua, an Andrew, David, Mary, Ruth or Elizabeth, all Bible names. The Bible has shaped our calendars and our seasons too. We're in the 21st century. That's 21 centuries since Jesus Christ and our favourite seasons and holidays like Christmas and Easter. They're all based on events in the Bible. And if you like music, the Bible's inspired West End musicals like Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat and song lyrics by famous artists, U2, Bob Dylan, Katy Perry, Mumford and Sons, even the Spice Girls. To Become One was in the Bible long before they sang it. And if you like sports, in stadiums all over the world, we hear songs and chants inspired by the Bible. Personally, I love rugby. And Welsh fans sing Bread of Heaven. The England team are cheered on by Swing Low Sweet Chariot. They're both songs inspired by Bible stories. If you like movies, Hollywood still spends millions on epic films based on the Bible. From Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ to the DreamWorks animation, The Prince of Egypt and the Bible was the basis for much of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. If you like reading, William Shakespeare's plays contain an estimated 1,300 quotations or allusions from the Bible. The Dictionary of Cultural Literacy even claims that no one in the English-speaking world can be considered literate without a basic knowledge of the Bible. And if you want to see society transformed, the Bible has inspired more positive change than anything else. From nurses like Florence Nightingale to the founding of hospitals and the whole hospice movement. The Bible inspired the abolitionist movement. People like William Wilberforce who helped to overturn slavery in the British Empire. 
Oh, and Wilberforce also founded the RSPCA because of his biblical commitment to animal welfare. You know, whole nations, governments and laws have been founded on principles in the Bible. In the Houses of Parliament, inscribed in the very floor of the lobby, is a verse from the Bible. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. I love reading and I love books. Sometimes I read on my... Great, wow. It's incredible, isn't it? To just take stock of some of the even simple things that the Bible has impacted. And we talked about revival this morning, but the Word of God has always had a central role in any of the great revivals that people have come back to a sense of confidence and a sense of commitment to the Scriptures. Uh, and let's be honest, obviously the, the history of the use and the misuse of the Bible hasn't exactly been a bed of roses all of the time. There have been times where the Bible has been misused and abused, and we shouldn't shy away from those things, of course. But the terrible, the Crusades, one of those. Some of the witch hunts uh, in later history. Um, you, you know, th there have been numerous times and when the Nazis even used Romans 13 to try to force people to try to like Hitler or to follow him uh, without thought. You know, there's times when the Bible has not exactly been used brilliantly, but... The unique impact of the Bible is undeniable. It's the best-selling book every single year uh, by far. In fact, they don't count it on the list of, of best-selling books because it just is an unfair game because of the impact. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks in America, when they gathered together to stand up for black rights in America after 100 years of laws that separated blacks and whites, they stood on a biblical belief that God had made all people equal. That was a new idea in the world, as in it's the Bible that brought that to the world, through the Jews and through Christians. Before that, no other culture on the face of the planet ever gathered around the idea that all people were created equal. So that truth has been born into the world by God speaking that to his people and his people recording that and sharing that down the centuries powerful and unique uh, in all of history. Human rights even. People that talk about human rights will talk about the fact that they were developed within the soil of scripture or biblically rooted faith. Rachel, if you want to just pop uh, Max Stackhouse quote up. It says this, look, intellectual honesty demands recognition of the fact that what passes secular and western principles of basic human rights developed where? Nowhere else than out of the key strands of biblically rooted religion and we they're so central to our cult culture today um curse and water <laughs> would be great the coffee might have helped but it's dried me out entirely um and so the bible's proven its power it's proven its power it's proven that it has a prominence that we can't deny or hide let me just give you one other quote. This is from an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in a God. Uh, his name's Jürgen Habermas. He's claimed to be one of the most influential thinkers of our time. But he said this, Biblical faith was the profound influence in shaping civilization. Wow. Remarkable words. Civilization-shaping truths that have done good in the world by and large. World-changing literature. This book has been dynamite as far as the transformation of the world goes. And it's still poignant today. 
And it's not just civilization shaping. Thank you. Ah, oh, double portion. Thank you. Not just civilization shaping, but personally powerful. Nicky Gumbel, the creator of the Alpha Course. Grew up an atheist, didn't believe in God. He thought religion was dull and pointless. In fact, he said Christianity was stupid. Whilst at university, to his horror, one of his closest friends becomes a Christian. Oh, good grief. So he goes out of his way to find every reason to convince this guy that he's wrong and rescue him. Guess where he goes? The Bible. He's going to find everything he can in here to prove why it's not right. Guess what Nicky found when he studied the scriptures? After spending time reading through the New Testament, Nicky found more than he bargained for. In fact, he used these words, it was if I'd found what I'd been looking for all my life. Suddenly he saw in the life of Jesus something deep and rich and powerful and it transformed his life. And he's gone on to create the Alpha Course, which has provided that same space for so many people to follow. It's powerful stuff. You know, we can see in 3D, looking back over history, in full color version, just the impact of what the, he- the writer of Hebrews said when he said, the, the word of God is living and active in the NLV, or alive and powerful if you read in the NLT. It has great powers. God created the universe just by speaking the word, so his words still change and transform society today. And so therefore we should find greater sense of confidence in this book. Okay, yes, there are bits of the Bible that we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, but Actually, where we should be confident, let's be confident because the world needs the truths that we have. And we should read and trust and devour and dive into as best as we can. But why is it when we open the Bible, it doesn't seem always quite that punchy and powerful and transformative and amazing? Anybody? Let's be honest, is anybody ever bored when you read the Bible? Are we allowed to admit that in public? Yes. Oh, not more lists. Oh, and they begat who and who and who. And what does that word mean anyway? Or confusing. What's a shekel when it's at home? Or even an ark. Uh, and why is it written in some of the order that it is? It sometimes seems highly confusing that things are the way they are. Or worse, what do we do with those other bits? You know, fridge magnets. How many fridge magnets have you seen with some of the bits of the Bible that we'd not want to talk about so much in public? It's difficult, isn't it? St. Benedict banned certain bits of the Bible for his monks before they went to bed because they were too violent or too exciting uh, for the imagination. He banned them. First seven books of the Bible particularly said, nope, you guys are not allowed to read these bits. Because there are bits, aren't there, that actually we all can feel very uncomfortable or even disturbed by some of what we read. Our faith can be fine as long as you don't read certain bits of the Bible and put you, put you off. Just, just being honest, why is it that Judah's daughter-in-law had to pretend to be a prostitute to, to sleep with her father? Huh? What's going on with that? Or when Hagar decided, uh, sorry, Sarah decided that actually, oh, the great plan to get God's promise to, to be fulfilled is to let Abraham sleep with the servant girl. I mean, culturally, it's the kind of stuff that just feels weird. 
and maybe worse than weird, I think sometimes it makes EastEnders look tame. But what do we do with those bits? Because it's really important. There's a, a quote Rachel put out from A.A. A. Milne, the, the writer of Winnie the Pooh. I'm not saying I agree with this, but his sentiment can resonate. Just have a read of that for a minute. Right. You might think he's wrong. All right? But there's something, isn't there, that sometimes we can all find parts of the Scriptures challenging. They can seem a million miles away. You read it and think, I'm supposed to get a word from God, and I'm reading this going, oh, uh, I don't know what to do with this right now. And it's okay to feel that with parts of the Scripture. I think there's something important about learning to recognize something's going on here and I don't understand. This feels like a long way from my life. In fact, the distance is huge because there's times we read it and go, I connect with that. That's powerful. Oh, yeah, I really resonate with that aspect of the story. And other times we think, this is a totally different world and I'm not sure what to do. But it's important that we stop to say, well, what is going on? In an ancient collection of writings, in a different cultural setting, in different times, it's right that we should, we should notice that and pay attention to that and not just brush over that because that's going to help us understand it more effectively. Because if we take it too literally sometimes, we can cause ourselves all kinds of problems. If we just think, oh, it's all fine, it doesn't matter, it's all God's word, it's all going to be just great for me, then we can get ourselves into a little bit of trouble. Let me read you something. This is a, a sarcastic letter. Okay, please hear the sarcasm in this. Uh, it's written to a, 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 Jewish, uh, a Jewish doctor, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, on the Old Testament. And this letter, she, she does um, some radio shows, and somebody wrote in to, to, to be a little bit sarcastic, but here's what she said. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I've learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly declares it's an abomination. End of debate. Thank you very much. I, don't need I do need some advice for you, from you sorry, about these specific laws and how I should follow them. I'd like to sell my daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21 verse 7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a, pra- a fair price for her? <laughs> I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35 verse 2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? Leviticus 21.20 states, I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20, or is there some wiggle room here? And most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples, even though it's expressly forbidden in Leviticus 19-27. How should they die, right? It's jesty, okay? But it's important, isn't it? Because if we don't see maybe what's going on within that circumstance or within that culture, 
we can miss that and come up with all kinds of ideas that maybe are not so helpful for us. Let's just look at an example together. If you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis 22. It's a story that I always struggled with, but there's something profound going on. The more I've taken time to try to understand, the more I've taken time to listen, the more I'm going to be blessed. Amazing, amazing promises. And it's incredible because they've not been able to have children up until that point, so it's a real answer to the cry of their hearts um, up until that point. And then we get to Genesis 22. And the story takes a turn for what I always found weird. Okay, and I, I, I'm not going to pretend that everything about this story is totally settled with me, but let's have a look at this. Genesis 22, verse 1. Some time later, God tested. Go and have some, some adventure together, uh, right? Sounds like it's going to be a positive time. And then, he says, sacrifice him. As a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Sacrifice? Child sacrifice? You know, we often read the layers, don't we, as Christians, and we say, oh, well, yes, it's about giving our all to God and putting God first and listening to him first. And, and they are excellent truths and important parts of, of this. We can read about trust that, well, God must have promised God, uh, sorry, God must have promised Abraham that Isaac was the son of the promise, so he must be about to do something. Um, absolutely, absolutely, really important. But look at Abraham's response. Always surprises me. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. I didn't even have a lion. Didn't even have to have a long coffee over which to think about this decision. He just gets up in the morning. Tally ho, off we go. Child sacrifice today. It's what it sounds like. Okay, or how I often read this. Forgive me if that's just me. And he takes his son and two of his servants and off they go uh, to go and do the deed. All right? I find it strange. I've probably found it more strange the older I've got and the more I've looked at this and, and thought, oh, God, what, what is going on here? But it's only been since I've seen it in its context, in its time, that some of that's begun to make more sense. So in the ancient Near East, the nations around Abraham, child sacrifice wasn't uncommon. There's a horrible history factor for the, for, the, for the past. It wasn't uncommon. People would give to the gods their children at times. I mean, that seems horrifying, but it was maybe more of a common thing in the past. Molech, for example, was a god that people would send their children into the fire. And some of the logic of that seems to be that People believed these gods were nasty and vicious and they could come and get you at any point with floods and lightning and whatever and disease. So you had to appease them and keep them happy. And so they would sacrifice whatever they felt was important to them. And some of them would go as far as then saying, well, the most important thing to me is my children. Therefore, the only way to keep these, these nasty, vicious, horrible gods happy is to offer my child. I know, horrible, but that's the kind of logic that went with it. So in the ancient Near East, Abraham probably wasn't doing anything all that weird. Let's just settle with that for a moment. Maybe it wasn't all that weird. But the story then for their time does get weird. Because at this point, Abraham goes to do the sacrifice. He's there ready to do the deed that God's asked him to do. 
And suddenly, there's this voice from heaven that says, whoa, 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 stop. I don't require this. That moment was a unique moment. None of the other gods of the ancient Near East ever declared that anybody should stop. The Jewish God, the God of the Bible, did. The first mention of this horrible practice is a moment when this God said, stop. For our people, this is not okay. In that time, it was a revolutionary belief. The Jewish people in that culture were the first ones to step forward and say, uh, actually, we don't do this. Our God isn't like yours. We, we don't need that. And actually, through then the history of, of the Old Testament, y- you see that these people didn't carry that out. God did something different in their time and revolutionized the way people thought. It seems so primitive to us looking back going, well, <laughs> as if they really needed to be told that. Because it's an assumption we have in our culture. But to take ourselves back to the ancient Near East, to the back to the place where they were at the time, this was something revolutionary. This was something remarkable. Like we've talked about Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the civil rights movement, like the abolition of slavery, something remarkable based on God speaking to his people and taking people on a journey, taking them somewhere better. Maybe hard to understand. Or maybe still seems a bit. But if somebody gets injured, obviously the earlier stages are far messier than the later stages. There's no, there's a progression. The healing process begins somewhere. Like a good teacher, you could say maybe God has stepped into the circumstance. Rather than just slamming them with the ideal and saying, well, you're supposed to be. He's met them where they are. I said, okay, first steps next steps that's begun to change the world to the way we know it today learning to see some of those things maybe can help us to be able to put some of those things into context because we see then that these are transformative words within their time powerful world changing once again uh, so there's a time for us to grow, I think, in the, again, our confidence and our commitment to Scripture. To, to learning to see, or firstly, to be confident about the, the powerful history of the Bible. That it has brought wonderfully transformative, powerful truths for thousands of years. It's proven its track record to be dynamite in terms of shaping the way the world is, leading us to the point where we are now and further and beyond. It calls us sometimes to stop. And that's probably where the commitment comes in. We can have confidence in the scripture, of course, that these are the words of life. As Jesus himself said, man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's something important about all of the scriptures. Jesus was utterly committed to that. But we should also be committed to to learning to sit with the questions at times. To recognize and think, what is going on with this? Because there's maybe something deeper and more powerful happening than just to brush it off or to walk away, as can be the case 
um, for, for others. To learn to love God better, we have to learn to listen better. To ask good, right questions. Because, like I say, in this you can see, or you may see, that God is doing something or was doing something remarkable in the pages of the scriptures that we are just not seeing from our cultural perspective. And learning to spend time together, discussing, talking about, being honest about those points. You know, I wonder sometimes if because we have a holy book, we sometimes feel that we, should, we shouldn't be honest about how we feel and what we think and how that works. But it's so important if we're going to grasp and to grapple with the scriptures to find their power that we need to wrestle with those aspects as well. It's not always an easy read, but we have a proven track record of powerful impact, of transformative literature, and finding out the key truths of the scriptures. We're going to spend some time over the next few weeks, as Theo said, picking out some of those key truths. We're going to pick out some of those things that shape the way we should view ourselves and God and and the world around us uh, to find a healthy, uh, satisfactory, powerful, holy way of us being committed to God through the scriptures and and relying on the spirit. Because not every question is going to be answered. But we can find absolute confidence in those things we do understand, in those parts that, that... that do really make sense, that that will shape us. Let's just read Isaiah 55 to, to finish this morning. Isaiah 55 says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk and money without cost. Without money, sorry, and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? Or your labor, or labor, sorry, on what does not satisfy? Instead, listen to me. Eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, and you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy. He will pardon. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, the revival, the transformation, the reconciliation, the renewal of the new heavens and the new earth, and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it out. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you that since the creation you've spoken. By your words, you have brought about life. 
and to the to peoples of, of ancient times past and to, to the modern world today, you've spoken truths that have brought about great good, that have begun to revolutionize society, that have begun to change the way people think, have begun to, to rest their lives on something far more powerful. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out, to grasp, to to seek understanding uh, through the power of your spirit. That, God, we might be a people of confidence in the word. That we might be a people of great commitment to you and to what it is that's been recorded about you and spoken of you. God, that your words would be life. We come to you, God, when we are thirsty, that we might find life-giving truth, powerful words, wonderful uh, ideas that can shape and can change and can bring about good for us, for our children, for our homes, for our city. To be bringers of life, God, we want to be people of the words of life. And so we ask that you'd help us.